It's an absolute blessing to be able to read uh, the two passages today. So we're going to read a passage in the Old Testament, uh, Deuteronomy 8, verses 1 to 10. That's on page 183, Deuteronomy 8, verse, uh, verses 1 to 10, page 183. And put a bookmarker there. And then the next uh, passage will be from Luke chapter 4 in the New Testament, Luke chapter 4, verses 1 to 13. And that's on page 1033. 10334 Luke chapter 4 verses 1 to 13. So as you're turning your Bible there, I thought I'd just give a very brief, um, uh, I guess, uh, background to Deuteronomy. So if you don't know, this is just a series of sermons that have been attributed to Moses and include some prophetic poems. The motivation for this particular set of sermons is to take heart, to be courageous and faithful to God, who is their Savior as they are now about to enter the promised land after 40 years of wandering in the desert. The key message for me is that it says God is still faithful even through persistent sinning. So this section we're about to read, chapter 8, verses 1 to 10, is titled, Remember the Lord Your God. Okay. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let your hunger and fed you with manna, with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing will, did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these forty years. Know then, in your heart, that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks, of water, of fountains and springs, flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron, and out of whose hills you can dig copper. And you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. All right, so let's now turn our Bible to page 1033. A few Bibles. And let's go to Luke chapter 4, verses 1 to 13. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. And Jesus, Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you 
I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. May the Lord bless the reading of this word. Thanks, uh, Manuel, <clears throat> and welcome. Uh, my name's Andy, and uh, so glad for us all to be together this, this morning. Uh, I might just pray uh, before we jump in. Oh, yeah. uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the blessing it is to gather here and hear words from you, our Creator, our Maker, our Sustainer. And Father, we just pray now as we reflect on these amazing words of our Saviour, that we might praise Him that we might worship him and that we might trust and delight in you the more after this. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, if you're joining us this morning for the first time, we are working our way through Luke, as Jasper said. And last week, it was all about how to be prepared for the coming of Jesus. Uh, And John the Baptist, last week, all about preaches a baptism of repentance. And so it's the assumption is we need to repent uh, last week I was chatting to a person from Wild Street after uh, we went through chapter 3 and he was trying to um, understand what's, what's the deal with repentance? You know, is it something that we do as a work or is it a gift of grace? You know, and he's trying to wrap his head around and We just kept going around in circles for about 20 minutes until I kind of asked him, I said, mate, what, what's going on? And then he said, well, actually, I've, just, I've got a whole bunch of temptations and sin in my life that I just keep falling into. And for me, it's, it's a wrestle with my experience as a Christian. I know I ought to repent, but I keep falling back into sin. Uh, for him, it was a struggle with porn. Like many people, uh, the stats are astronomically high. Uh, but he was trying to wrestle with, hang on, what, what does it mean to repent and to be a Christian? And all his assurance and confidence was lost because of his experience. Every Christian has to come to terms with this battle. We all fall into sin, are tempted, Uh, whether it's porn or gossip or losing their temper, you know, withholding forgiveness, losing your patience, whatever it is. Each of us know that when we put our trust in Lord Jesus, we still fail in temptation. And that can rob us of the certainty and assurance that God wants for us. Now, I said a bunch of things to this young bloke last week, but I tell you what, I wish I had read this passage. I wish I'd just gone, oh, yeah, we're in chapter 3. Let's go to the next bit in Luke, because this will really help us in our thinking about what does it mean to repent and to be a Christian and have assurance. Now, I think it really helps, but not for the reason you might assume. See, this isn't first and foremost 
a kind of a recipe or you know a method of how we as Christians uh, cannot fall into temptation, but it's actually unique to Jesus and his temptations. Uh, this is unique to him, and I, I think by the end, I hope that we it will help us. But it's not because it's going to tell us how to, but because we get to see Jesus more clearly. Now, I don't know about you, but it's not really a temptation of mine. You know, when I'm hungry, to look at the sand and think, oh, I've just. I would just want to turn that sand into brasserie bread and just eat that loaf of brasserie bread. You know, it's not, it's, you know, it's not our temptation here. These are unique to Jesus. It's not just in our experience that we see that. I think actually the context shows us this is a unique experience of Jesus. Remember, baptism and repentance, uh, the way that sinful people get ready is they repent and they get ready for the king that is coming. But do you remember the words and what happened at Jesus' baptism? He kind of rocks up with the rest of the sinful nation. Uh, everyone else, God is silent. But when Jesus gets baptised, baptized, the heavens open, the spirit descends in bodily form like a dove, and the voice of God declares it. Turn back to chapter 3. Have your Bibles open. Uh, we'll be working our way through this passage. Chapter 3, verse 22. The voice of God says, You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. See, this is a declaration from God that this one is his beloved son. He is pleased with him. No one else got that at their baptism, right? That, this is unique to Jesus. Uh, and when we hear these words, it kind of should raise all sorts of expectations in our mind as a reader of this and, and tension. Because... You know, when the Son of God, it has a kind of a rich Old Testament history behind it. And it can be a little confusing for us today. When he says the Son of God, he's not primarily speaking about God the Son, you know, the third person of the Trinity. No, he's, he's kind of talking about uh, a title, a person. Uh, and God, the, the Son of God, there's all different people that get called that in the Bible. Uh, just at the end of chapter 3, Adam gets called the Son of God, doesn't he, right there, when he gets called the Son of God, as, as he was the one who's going to inherit God's creation. Uh, did he please God like God declared Jesus would? No. Like if you know the story, you know, he, he failed miserably. Uh, he didn't trust God at his word. He, didn't, he listened to the serpent, uh, the deceiver, and he sinned, and it just created a huge consequence of sin throughout all the world. But the second person that gets called the Son of God in the Bible, the second people, is the people of God, the nation of Israel. Uh, throughout the Old Testament, they get called this because they're the ones that are going to inherit the kingdom of God. Now, as a nation, do they have a good track record of pleasing God? No. They failed. They were disobedient. They followed each individual as a nation following their father's footsteps. See, this title, this Son of God, gets kind of different people throughout the Bible, but there's one huge expectation from Psalm 2 that it was going to be the Son of God was going to be the Messiah, the Christ, the one that would rule the nations. Uh, here's, here's a quote of where it is. Psalm 2 is a very kind of famous psalm, discussion between God the Father and God his Son, the Anointed One. But here's the point I want to point out. Is he says in verse 7, uh, I will tell the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my Son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. See, up until the point of Jesus, all the sons of God 
had had a hopeless track of pleasing God, failure after failure. And we get Jesus, and it says, and God, the heavens open, they say, this is my son. This is the long-awaited ruler of the world, the one that's going to inherit the nations, going to rule them. He says, with him, this one, I am well pleased. Now, that should also kind of raise a bit of questions for us too. We'll get to Luke 4 in a moment, but we've got to get the context to help us. Because the, the second part of what God said is actually referring to the suffering servant in Isaiah 42. So here's a, a, a passage. He says, Behold my servant whom I, I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him and he will bring forth justice to the nations. See, right there in, in God's declaration of who Jesus is, we get attention. We get the tension that, you know, every son of God has failed. We also get the tension that we have here now, the ruler, the one that's going to rule and inherit the world, but also the one who's the suffering servant, uh, who's going to be rejected, despised and crushed and put to death for the sins of the world. This is where we start our journey in Luke 4. And what happens to him after this declaration? Well, he's filled with the Holy Spirit and he gets led directly into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Uh, the devil has had a 100% success rate at this point. He's pretty good at what he does. Uh, but Jesus gives him a run for his money. Have a look at the first temptation there in uh, verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, <clears throat> returned to the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. Now, when I read that, I thought, what's actually wrong with him kind of turning the stone into bread? He's, you know, he's in the wilderness by himself. Surely he's got the power he can do that. What, what's actually the issue you know, with having a three-course meal on his own in the wilderness. Oh, well, I think we've got to understand the context and his connection to Israel's experience in the wilderness. That helps us to understand what the issue is. When I read wilderness, I think holidays. I think, you know, away from the rat race, I get to enjoy nature, switch off. You know, it's all positive. But as a nation, when you read wilderness, you, got, you think, oh, Moses... Old Testament, Deuteronomy, they've they're actually, you know, they've been rescued from slavery. But what happened? They didn't trust God that he would give them the nation and they grumbled and they didn't trust him. And so what happened? The whole generation died out in the wilderness because they wouldn't trust God at his word. And so Jesus, he, he's been like Israel. Uh, he's been led by God, by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness and he's learning to trust God in everything. And we also get, you know, get this connection to Israel through the kind of, you know, how Luke states the obvious, you know, 40 days uh, and he was hungry. I'm like, okay, you know, it's, it's a pretty obvious conclusion. Of course, he's hungry, but he's warning us to go highlight, oh, yeah, Israel's experience in the wilderness, 40 years, okay, I know what's going on. Um, now, when the, when the devil says um, in verse 3, if you are the son of God, I don't think it's necessarily a question, you know, like, uh, hang on, are you really the son of God? It's rather, I think, more of like a, since you are the son of God, uh, you should use your power to serve yourself, 
to feed yourself because you're hungry. And I think the temptation is more subtle <clears throat> than kind of a proof that he is the Son of God. You know how some people read this and think, oh, he's just proving that he is the Son of God. Uh, no, I think it's actually more subtle because of the context. It's actually more about no, just use who you are for yourself. Uh, use who you are. I know what it is, the Son of God. You have that power, but don't listen to your Father. Act independently of Him. Act outside of your Father's will. See, here I think the heart is what the devil's dangling before Jesus is an alternative route to glory, an alternative route to being the Son of God other than the suffering servant who's going to have to walk his way to the cross. As far as I can tell, uh, when I read Jesus' miracles, he never does any signs, wonders, healings for himself throughout Luke. It's always out of love to serve others. Now, while this is uniquely a temptation for Jesus, I think we can somewhat feel maybe what was tempting about this to Jesus here. Uh, maybe some of us here are thinking the hand God has dealt us isn't really the hand that I can see from a loving, good, heavenly Father. Maybe it's not what I would expect or wanted or desired. And so you might think, oh man, instead of kind of entrusting myself, ourselves to God and serving him, think, oh, God's not really looking out for my interest. I better start looking out for my own interest. You know, like Adam in the garden, like Israel in the wilderness. And I'll tell you what, at this point, all of us fail. I fail this and tempted to think like this. But unlike us, unlike the nation, unlike Adam, Jesus didn't. He succeeds. Verse 4, what does he say? He says, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. He quotes Deuteronomy 8. This, all these quotes are from the same part of the Bible. <clears throat> he says to Satan, I'm going to learn to trust my Heavenly Father even when it appears that my needs aren't met. Now, Jesus isn't saying uh, that man does not live on any bread, you know, as in any food, uh, but he's saying bread alone. You know, he's saying there's more to life than our hunger. Like Eleanor said, like, there's more to life than a full stomach, a healthy bank account, healthy relationships. There's actually something powerfully significant about a relationship with God, your creator. And he says, my food is to do the will of my father, and I'm going to live by God's word. See, the devil knows that God cannot save us if Jesus doesn't live according to the will of his father if Jesus doesn't choose to trust every word of God, if he doesn't learn obedience, and if he doesn't live or die by God's word. Everyone else failed, Jesus doesn't. He succeeds. He's the first human to stand up to the devil. Temptation 2, verse 5. The devil took him and showed him all the kings of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, To you I'll give you all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I'll give it to whom I will. As I read this uh, with people from church this week, we wrestled with the question, does the devil, does Satan actually have this authority that he um, says here, or is he, you know, is he just telling a flat-out lie? And we reflected, because the, the devil clearly has power. He can perform signs and wonders. Uh, John, you know, the, in the Gospel of John, talks about him being the prince of the world. Uh, 1 Corinthians 4 talks about uh, Satan... Uh, having blinded the minds of unbelievers. 
But here's the truth. Nothing happens outside of the will of God. Although he wants to imply he's in charge, he's not in charge. And he certainly, and it's certainly not true that God isn't in charge of everything. And so the, the actual truth is that God actually rules the world and everything belongs to Jesus. I have Colossians 1, which is you know, one of those go-to passages, uh, which says, you know, For by him, that is Jesus, all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rules and authority. All things were created through him and for him. And in fact, isn't it the same truth that Psalm 2 promises of the Son who asked the Father? Uh, so, you know, the, he, you know, that discussion that we read, the Father will give him the nations as his inheritance to the ends of the earth. See, it's Jesus who was, is the Son of God, whom this world was created for, uh, and the world was made to glorify God, but he was the one who would please God. Now, this concept, I think, is key to actually understand what's at the heart of his temptation here. Because Satan, in effect, is offering him exactly what his father has offered him, but through a different route. You with me? You know, so what he's saying, Satan's, what's he saying? You get every kingdom and power and rule, but that's the very thing that the Son of God is set to inherit from Psalm 2, and who God has already declared that Jesus is. See, the, the same thing, but Satan's offering a different route to inheriting the power and rule. So the devil's temptation, it's not subtle. He's essentially saying, you don't need to suffer and die. You're a king. You're the anointed one. You're the son of God. You're not a servant that suffers and goes to death. Just bow the knee and worship me. Whereas the father says, no, the path to glory, the path to rule and power is through suffering and dying. It is through your life as a suffering servant. There's no shortcuts here. Your power and rule and reign comes through the cross. Now, this temptation that Jesus faced here, he faced his whole life. You remember um, later on in the interaction uh, with Jesus and his disciples, Peter, it kind of clicks for him, right, where he realizes who Jesus is. He says, you are the Christ, the Messiah. And then what does Jesus do? Jesus goes... You're right, true, uh, but what is it? The Son, the son of Man is, must go on to suffer, be rejected, die, and three days later rise again. What does Peter say? No way. I know what the Christ is. But then what does Jesus say to him? Get behind me, Satan. Wow. Exactly the same temptation that faced Jesus. Peter saw it, and Jesus hears those words and says, Get behind me, Satan. There was no other avenue, rule, to glory for Jesus. Or even later on for Jesus' life. It still keeps going. You know, he's on the cross. Who, what happens? People call out and mock him. You know, if you are the Son of God, come down and save yourself. The rules, if you are the Christ, the chosen one, save yourself and others. The soldiers, if you are the king, the criminal, you're not the Christ. You know, if you are the Christ, questioning him, the great irony is the only way that Jesus can save us is not by saving himself, but by, by lying his life down as the suffering servant. See, this temptation of Jesus, he resisted temptation all the way to the cross. Uh, in this first temptation, he sees it for what it is, and he quotes it, Deuteronomy at him. Verse 8, he says, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, 
and him only shall you serve. A simple truth, but profound. It's not rocket science. There's only one God. I'm going to serve him. Jesus learned the path of obedience, even to the point of death. He didn't replace his heavenly father with the devil. He knew the path to glory meant suffering. It meant sacrifice. It meant sweats of blood. Uh, And he obeyed and worshipped the one and only true God till the very end. Now, here's the thing which I want us to reflect on for us for a moment, is when you become a Christian, you know, you get get to be co-heirs with Christ. You know, we as Christians, when we trust Jesus, we are now called sons of God. Uh, We're co-heirs. Now, that's a profound truth. So in Jesus, we kind of get all his benefits. Uh, Romans 8 speaks about it like this. He says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bear witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children of God, then heirs. And heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we might also be glorified. See, Christians are those who will inherit everything alongside Christ. But just like Christ, we follow in his footsteps. We also follow in the path of suffering than glory. And I think the devil wants to tempt us in that there's an easier way out. There's a, you know, a life of less suffering, a life of more comfort. You can have both, be a follower of God, and you can have everything this world has to offer. Don't listen to the lie. Trust God and follow him. Okay, the last temptation, uh, temptation three. Uh, Verse nine. uh, And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Notice Satan's strategy here. It's not to kind of hold the internet up and all the access to everything. No, he quotes the Bible. The the words of God come out of the devil's mouth. Half-truths, deceptions. It's just a, a reminder for us that if someone is quoting the Bible and each week here at church and anywhere else for you to read it, have the Bible open, read it and to assess, is this what God is actually saying? Uh, the devil here, he quotes Psalm 91 uh, and it's a promise of God uh, to protect those who trust him. Uh, and Satan, he kind of wants to twist it and so that we would test God and kind of force God to protect him, that Jesus would test God and force him to protect him. And again, he says, if he, you know, you know, show that who you are by doing this action and forcing God's hand. Uh, from the top of the temple uh, down to the Kidron Valley, it's believed about a 100-metre drop. So it's an opportunity to test the voice from heaven. This is what the devil is tempting him with. Call your father to protect you. It's even what the Bible says he will do. But Jesus won't test his father. Instead, he quotes scripture again back to him. And he said, you shall not, verse 12, put the Lord your God to the test. See, Jesus withstands the temptation. 
unlike Israel, Adam, every other human. He doesn't need to prove that the Father will protect him. He trusts him. He knows he protects him. It's not doesn't like he needs extra proof uh, that God is for him. The words of his heavenly Father are enough for him. Friends, for us, God doesn't need to prove that he has our back. You know, by healing or offering us that job or that relationship that we long to. He doesn't have to give us everything we ask for every time. He's already proven it to us in his son. He loves us by enduring the temptations, by suffering for us and dying on the cross and rising to life for our sins. See, what I wished I pointed out to this bloke last week who was struggling with the Christian experience of temptation and sin and and assurance, I wish I pointed out Luke 4. I wish I said, yeah, that's right. Just like Jesus, you'll be tempted. Unlike Jesus, you will fail. But just what we need to do is look to the one who was obedient and who didn't fail. Trust him. That's what it means to be a Christian, is to trust the one who was obedient in your place. Uh, And more than that, he's the one who obeyed his heavenly father all the time, but he suffered on the cross for that. He endured all the way to the cross, died there for our failure in our place. That is why he came. There's only one person who is truly obedient, and that is Jesus. Fully human, fully tempted, yet without sin. There's only one way to the Father, and that is through this man, Jesus. So trust him. Delight in him. Just remind yourself afresh of that truth. What buckets of confidence should overflow us as we read Luke 4? Adam failed, but Jesus didn't. Israel failed, but Jesus didn't. King David failed, Jesus didn't. King Solomon, Jesus didn't. You keep going. You and I, are we going to fail? Yes. But who didn't? Jesus didn't. Jesus stood firm. He loved God perfectly, and he served us perfectly by dying from us. Reflect on that amazing truth. The second thing I wish I would have said to this person is that when the devil lies to you, that you can't be a you know, a Christian because of this. Speak the words of truth to him. I'm a child of God. I trust in the obedient one. I'm in the family. So it's not as though you fail and then you're out and then you, you know, you're past and you're in. No, when you trust the obedient one, you're in the family. And as a Christian, God looks down at you and he doesn't see your moral failure. He doesn't see our weakness in face of temptation. He sees our perfection in light of his son. We're a co-heir with Christ. So have confidence. Have confidence that as a child, you can move on in the power of the Spirit to follow your Savior. Remind yourself today, Jesus is the obedient one who dies in our place. God is our heavenly Father. He's not our judge. Jesus is interceding for us He's not accusing us at the Father's right side. The Holy Spirit bears witness to our spirit that we are children of God and the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin but never condemns us. Jesus is the truly obedient one who fully tempted yet was without sin and he is fully trustworthy to take our sin in our place.
Let's praise God with these words each other this morning uh, and you can really trust him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we read the temptations of Jesus, we are reminded of our own failure. Uh, Sometimes small, sometimes big, sometimes catastrophic in consequences. And Father, we know too well that we have not done what we ought to have done in trusting and serving you. And Father, we just want to praise you for our glorious Saviour, Jesus, your obedient Son, who though was tempted, yet unlike us, he's without sin and he endured through the end. Thank you that he is the Son of God and the suffering servant. And Father, thank you that he was obedient to the point of death on the cross. We pray, Father, that we would praise and worship and trust him all the more. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen.